0: You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to this week's Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer, and with me are Colin Campbell, Craig Jarvis, Will Doran, and Lynn Bonner, all of the News and Observer. Uh, This was uh, our first week with President Trump it was the first week of session starting in earnest, and uh, we had some other news, including uh, our former governor, Pat McCrory, uh, being pursued down a street by um, people who um, were shouting shame at him. So we'll talk about all of that this week on Domecast, uh, but let's start with session. Uh, Wednesday was the first real day of session, even though they convened two weeks ago to do some organizational and symbolic uh ceremonial uh, stuff but they came back Wednesday to actually start filing bills and doing their work for the year and uh, this is the long session so they'll be writing a two-year budget Um, some of that will uh, focus on education spending Uh, so Lynn uh, the um, first day included some comments from uh, Senator Berger Senate leader Phil Berger and also from new governor Roy Cooper uh, about what that should look like and whether taxes uh, should be uh, how taxes should be changed when it comes to paying for that. So um, what did uh, Governor Cooper say to, to start off with?
1: Well, Governor Cooper appeared at uh, Eggs and Issues Breakfast, um, sponsored by the uh, Public School Forum of North Carolina. And he uh, talked about um, trying to enlist uh, businesses in uh, talking to the legislature about Um, forgoing further corporate tax cuts in favor of um, spending on education. Uh, He repeated this uh, a couple of times. I guess this has been a message over the past few weeks that he's presented to uh, both education supporters, um, business groups, and the intersection of those two. um, That... uh, uh, the Senate leader fired back, uh, Phil Berger, fired back on his Facebook page saying that Cooper was trying to uh, put up a roadblock um, to more tax reductions. Um, we don't know exactly what kind of tax package uh, the Republicans will be putting forth this, uh, this session, but, um, you know, Cooper repeated the refrain that Democrats had that tax cuts have primarily benefited the wealthy and um, you know Berger replied that they were able to raise teacher pay even with their tax cut package so we're starting to see where the battle lines are going to be drawn um, in the budget over um, education spending and taxes.
0: In the past, uh, the Republicans have tended to uh, reduce income taxes and uh, increase or at least expand sales taxes to make up for it. Uh, it, it, Is there any sign that that's probably going to be there? uh, What they're going to do this year? uh, What they're going to try to do this year?
1: Uh, Well, we've heard some uh, vague talk about tax cuts. but I don't think anybody has mentioned sales tax increases. Um, so, as I said, it's it's still uncertain how they're going to structure their their tax proposals.
0: Okay. And do we know much about what education spending under Cooper would look like? Under Co- Cooper's plan, Cooper's budget
1: will look like. Well, he's talking about um, uh, getting the teacher, average teacher pay up to the national average, so we're definitely going to see something there, and um, he is skeptical of uh, private school vouchers, um, and I doubt that we'll see funding for vouchers in his budget, um, while the legislature seems uh, intent on Increasing spending on vouchers, uh, they in their last budget they sort of laid out a plan for increases for the next decade. So that's another clash we're going to see.
0: Okay, well, uh, Colin, the first bills started to be filed in the legislative session on the first day, and uh, one of them was related to education spending, uh, dealt with class size. Uh, what did the legislature do last year on class size? That's causing uh, some. Problems or some headaches now for school districts.
2: So this was an interesting one that didn't really get that much attention last year when it went through. It was part of the budget, uh, basically uh, required a reduction in the, the maximum class sizes in uh, K through three um, class uh, situations. Um, But the problem was that they mandated a reduction in class sizes and didn't add any additional funding to hire new teachers. Ultimately, if you lower class sizes, you need more teachers to teach the existing uh, number of students. Um, And typically that uh, money is is set at sort of the state level. uh, Local uh, school districts can add to that. Um, And a lot of the school districts have been using some of the money that the state directs to – fund classroom teachers to fund some sort of extracurricular type classes uh physical education music arts programs uh that sort of thing uh so there's been this outcry from school districts saying hey look if you're gonna insist on us having lower class sizes without giving us any more funding uh then we're Going to have to look at cutting some of these other programs because we either need to raise more money locally to fund them, or we need to uh, cut money somewhere so that we can spend it on on more teachers and, and more classrooms. Um, and the legislature has realized, uh, I think, uh, in in Craig Horn's words, one of the House uh, education budget writers, that that was sort of a uh, something that was poorly thought out, didn't have didn't go through the unintended consequences of it. So now looking to fix the problem. Again, fixing the problem without uh, having a whole lot of financial impact. So the bill that came out on the first day of session, and this is the bill that uh, particularly in the the House leadership they've signaled is going to be one of their early priorities to try to get this done fairly quickly, uh, would essentially change that uh, class size cap a little bit higher. So the maximum will be, you know, two or three students more than it was under the current law. And this current law was supposed to go into effect with this coming school year that starts uh, this late summer, early fall. Um, but it doesn't go quite to where it it was this year, so it's kind of a meet-in-the-middle sort of thing. Um, And the School Boards Association, uh, which I spoke to this week, said they're supporting this. as They they feel like it's a good middle ground sort of uh, compromise-type bill, Uh, but there may be some school districts that still have uh, some funding issues that they've got to figure out once this goes through, uh, but the idea is that the the school districts really want this to happen soon because they'll be getting into their budget mode for the next school year within the next month or two, um, and they've got to know you know how much they're gonna have to ask their their county commissions for and, and that sort of thing so Um, That's one bill to watch for just in the next couple weeks. We should see that moving fairly quickly through the House. The question is whether the Senate is is on board with it because they were not as quick to move with that uh, in the special session.
1: This has happened in previous years where they've um, debated and approved class size reductions for the lower grades. Um, Of course, when you squeeze a balloon at one end, You inflated to the other. And what has happened uh, or happened in previous years was that as um, class sizes got smaller um, in early elementary, they got much larger in middle school. So teachers are saying, well, we have way too many students in this eighth grade science class to to be effective. So there's always an interplay, um, especially when there is a mandate to reduce class sizes without – adding extra teachers, and how exactly they're going to do that, and, you know, what gets what gets cut or, um, you know, who suffers as a result of, of uh, you know, uh, a mandate without more money.
0: What other bills have been filed so far? I guess, Colin, but if anybody else wants to jump in too, uh, what have yeah, you seen so, so far? Yeah, so there's been a
2: couple interesting ones. Um, one is this uh, imminent domain uh, constitutional amendment that... Uh, went through the House last session two years ago um, and ended up uh, not making it quite to the governor's desk because the Senate tacked on some unrelated uh, constitutional amendments. So what this would basically do um, is put a ballot question on, in I believe, 2018, Uh, that would ask voters if they want to limit uh, the use of eminent domain to seize property to public uses. So this would basically prevent uh, the government from seizing property that they would be for some sort of private development uh, type situation. Uh, So that's something that uh, may have support, uh, I think, definitely in the House. Uh, The question is uh, how much the Senate goes along with it, as is often the case. Um, Another bill filed in the first day of the session um, involved the state's uh, savings uh, account and how that's Budgeted. Um, how much money to put away into the, the piggy bank, um, as one would might say, has uh, been an issue for a number of years. Uh, Republicans have really prided themselves on increasing the state's uh, rainy day fund uh, since they've been in charge. Uh, but the question year to year is, is exactly how much to put in there. So this would uh, essentially set in stone how much you're going to put in there. It. it has to be, I think, about 15% of the revenue growth that you've received over the previous year. So kind of a complicated formula, uh, but the the main takeaway of it is that both the Senate and the House seem to be on board with this, um, and then it would sort of limit some of the politics into just how much do you put away into savings versus spending on new programs or tax cuts or, or anything like that when you go through the budget. So that's a another bill to watch that, that seems to have some Republican support. Uh, another one that I'm hopefully going to have a story out of this over the weekend, uh, It's kind of an interesting one in the wake of some of the um, police violence sort of situations that we've had uh, both in North Carolina and across the country in the last couple of years, and have gotten a lot of attention. Uh, this is a bill filed by um, Representative Ken Goodman in the House. He's a Democrat, along with a couple of Republicans, including Uh, Republican Representative Alan McNeil, who's actually a former sheriff's deputy, um, and it would change the state's uh, driver's ed curriculum and the state driver's manual to Explain exactly how you should act during a traffic stop. So, things like, you know, make sure your hands are on the steering wheel where the officer can see them. You know, don't make sudden movements where you seem to be reaching for something and might lead the officer to believe that you have a weapon of some sort. Um, so, that's one that's that's pretty interesting. And, uh, well, I was kind of surprised. Uh, we focus so much on North Carolina, but uh, a lot of these bills seem to be consistent across several states. I don't know where they get the ideas from, probably some sort of think tank somewhere. But I was uh, listening to NPR this morning, and they were talking about a bill that had been filed in the Virginia legislature, which was the same thing. And as I'm sleepily listening to the radio, I'm thinking, oh man, they've, they've got the story that I was going to come out with this weekend, and then I realize it's actually about Virginia. But it's the almost the identical bill and the identical rationale for the bill. So uh, North Carolina politics uh, mirror uh, some of our neighboring states in a, in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, and this is the same week that we're uh, seeing all kinds of news stories about other states putting in versions of HB2 into the um, hopper in their yeah, states. Yeah, and I should
2: note that uh, Virginia is actually one of those where um, their uh, HB2 uh, copycat bill kind of went down in flames within, I think, just the last week or so that uh, it was up for a committee hearing or something, and the, uh, the Republicans in Virginia killed it pretty quickly um, clearly looking to the economic example of, of North Carolina as their reason that they did not want to go down that path. But it'll be interesting to see if other states where similar bills have been filed uh, end up going ahead with it or if, if North Carolina uh, somehow continues to stand alone as, as being one that has a an HB2 on the books. Of course, I don't know if we should still call it HB2 because – HB2 for this current session is actually that uh, savings account. I know it's not the savings account bill I talked about. It's a bill yeah. about property, uh, tax property tax for uh, yeah. um, uh, property tax relief for um, survivors fi- survivors of have fallen, paramedics, and paramedics and firefighters, that sort of things, yeah. police officers. Um, so you're going to be hearing talk of hb2 some in the legislature this year and they're going to be talking about a, a, a feel-good bill that'll probably a lot of people are going to support as opposed to the the hb2 um of of the past but uh, uh, so i was suggesting they should maybe retire that bill number just to avoid the confusion and uh just move on to hb3 uh, in big, future sessions a big
0: two jersey hanging over the uh, uh, rotunda yeah oh, exactly yeah um, yeah, so it's that's the first bill filed every year, right, after yeah, the rules bill. Yeah, so, yeah, HB1, uh, HB1 is HB1 always is the, House
2: the House rules. HB2 is the first bill of substance. And it's typically, um, you know, some a bill that's filed by somebody in sort of a powerful leadership position who wants to make it clear that, you know, this is – going to be at the top of our agenda this year, whatever the bill may be Uh, in the past. uh, uh, Before there was HB2, there was Senate Bill 2, which was uh, two years ago, which was the Phil Berger proposed bill that um, allowed magistrates to be exempt from performing marriages if they had religious objections
0: to gay marriage. Well, speaking of HB two, Craig, uh, the Democrats talked about that and other issues at their press conference to open the session. Um, you went to that. What did the uh, what did the Democratic leadership in the minority of the legislature have to say?
3: Well, this was a press conference involving the uh, the uh, all the Democrats in both chambers, and they kind of hit on four points. They stressed uh, once again the education aspect of the budget uh dan senator dan blue said i don't know if he was paraphrasing somebody or if this is a quote i should recognize but he said as they say don't tell me who you are show me your budget uh in which he was talking about education spending that that needs to needs to be reflected as a priority in the budget and they were looking to the governor roy cooper to uh sort of lead the way uh, on that so they talked about that they talked about the taxes you know not uh, increasing taxes on the middle class um but then, two more of kind of uh, you know big big picture things, which was HB two. They insist they are convinced that that uh, repeal of HB two could could pass both chambers this year. They said they need 11 Senate uh, Republicans and about 15 House Republicans to join Democrats in order to accomplish that. Um, I don't know if that's if that's really gonna happen or not this year. Uh it's still up in the air. Phil Berger, the uh Senate majority leader, has said that uh, it's possible if if people could compromise, but uh, that last session last month ended in a lot of rancor because it just didn't seem to uh you know, there's just a lot of distrust there's just too much baggage surrounding the issue for a simple repeal. I uh you know, I'm a little skeptical, but we'll see. And then the other issue they're talking about is uh another Item off the Cooper agenda, which is expanding Medicaid, and they're—I um, think they're trying to make more political traction there than than reality. I don't think anybody really thinks that uh, the legislature is going to expand Medicaid this session. But uh, those were the main the, the main points they were they were hitting.
0: Okay. And of course, the Medicaid issue is all tied up in court right now, mm-hmm. um, with the uh, the governor looking to expand it. Mm-hmm. Um, any reason to think the Democrats are going to have more leverage uh, uh, this year because there's a Democratic governor? Um, they tried to uh, secure a, uh, end the veto proof majorities super majorities um, and weren't successful during the election. Uh, do you think this will they'll basically be uh, about as relevant as they have been in the last few years or
3: Well maybe a little more relevant. I mean they're going to have a, they're, they're pretty well aligned already with uh, Governor Cooper. Uh, you know they still don 't have the votes when it comes down to voting, but you know they always look for these coalition opportunities, and you give me that, I can support you on such and such and uh, you know I think that 's a possibility that they'll that that can only improve their standing um, certainly politically then get that political traction from the governor
1: and when it comes down to well they 'll have um, you know their position amplified. Many times by Cooper. I mean, they do. The legislative Democrats and Cooper do seem to be working in concert, and they'll have somebody at the very end of the budget process. You know, Cooper trying to negotiate a budget with Republicans. As it is now, there's there's no Democrat in the room um, when um, at budget time, um, but. You know, even with uh, Bev Perdue, who was, you know, largely dismissed by Republicans in the legislature, there were, you know, budget negotiations going on, at least in the first budget. So um, we can expect that there is going to be some kind of leverage, who knows how much, um, that Cooper can bring to the budget negotiations.
2: Yeah, and I would say to watch uh, particularly the the situation on the budget in the House – the last couple of budget cycles in the House, there have been some tax incentive sort of things that some of the most conservative Republicans of the House have objected to, and that's resulted in them uh, voting against the uh, the final budget document that comes out of the House. And that's usually about ten or fifteen members. So if that continues to be the case with this year's budget, where those individuals are not willing to, on the Republican side, not willing to support it, then that may give the Democrats more leverage if they can vote as a block, and if Roy Cooper can sort of keep them all together along with. Uh, Democratic leader Darren Jackson, they may be able to have some bargaining power to say, we'll vote for the Republican budget, but only if you do X, Y, or Z, whatever the priority may be that they think they can find some common ground on.
1: Yeah, Republicans really, uh, back back to the issue of education, Republicans in the legislature haven't seen entirely eye to eye on education policy. And there are things that the House has wanted, uh, House Republicans uh, reestablishing some kind of um, Scholarship program for teachers, uh, changing the way school grades are calculated—that House Republicans have wanted, but Senate Republicans said absolutely not. Um, but what if um, a, a governor came in and said, and uh, as Cooper talked about this week, saying, "Hey, we want a scholarship program for teachers." What if uh, a Republican, uh, or a, uh, if if a Democratic go- governor's voice? was added to that, and a Democratic governor made that a priority. Would the calculus change when it got over to the Senate side? Would it add um, some leverage in in getting uh, some movement on certain education policies?
3: Another kind of interesting aspect is that even though the governor is a Democrat, he really has a lot of experience with the legislature. He knows them. He knows how things work. He's already brought on a team of veterans who know how that thing works.
1: And he used to be one of them.
3: And he used to be one of them, yeah. And that's a distinction between uh, him and the previous governor, who was a Republican, Pat McCrory, who never quite had hit his stride in terms of aligning his agenda with the legislature, uh, at least not on as many issues as he would have liked to. So, um, you know, we'll see. Uh,
0: Will, you are taking a look at one issue that could be before the legislature, which is uh, raising the age at which uh, juveniles are prosecuted as adults
4: um to 18 instead of 16 right Exactly and this is something that's come up several times in recent years. It's always failed um, but uh, uh, supporters think that it, it's got a shot this year. Uh, Dwayne Hall uh, Raleigh Democrat is the kind of the main person who's been behind it uh, in the past uh, he he used to co-sponsor the bills with Marilyn Avila a Raleigh Republican so it had some bipartisan support and uh, typically the bills would pass the house but then would just, usually not even come up for a vote in the Senate or you know, die in the Senate for whatever reason. But they say this year they've got the support of the sheriff's organization, which they never had in the past, and so they're a little bit hopeful. Um, and so I looked into a claim that Representative Hall made um, about uh, potential cost savings for the program for PolitiFact. Uh, he was saying that uh, if, if North Carolina were to, to make this change to uh, stop prosecuting every 16- and 17-year-old as an adult, that it could potentially save the state tens of millions of dollars, and uh, the uh, the conventional wisdom, part of the reason for the opposition to this has been actually the program's cost in the past that you know if you know because you're not going to be able to transfer all of these kids out of the adult prison system at once, you're going to have some in the adult system, some in the juvenile system, you're going to have to build new juvenile facilities, you know obviously none of that is free. Um, but I talked to uh, William Lasseter, who's the head of the state's juvenile justice uh, division, and he he pointed to some reforms in the 90s, the late 90s, that he said uh, did cost extra money up front, but resulted eventually in uh, about $40 million in savings um, by uh, – two years ago, by 2015, they had, they had cut their budget by about $40 million because there's just – you know, fewer youth committing crimes because of, you know, some of these uh, reforms that are focused a little bit more on rehabilitation instead of just punishment. Um, So he thinks that there's a a good precedent there for that. Um, So basically by moving people into the
0: juvenile system from the adult system, then when they get out, they're less likely to to commit more crimes. So they're probably not going to come back and you save money on prisons.
4: Exactly. And that's the the overwhelming consensus from people who've studied this issue for years is that uh, if you put teenagers into adult prisons they come out as even more hardened criminals and are more likely to commit crimes you know there's you know you can look at the numbers if you know if a teenager texas did a big study if a teenager went to an adult prison he was 21 percent more likely to commit a crime after getting out than if he went to a juvenile facility um so by you know reducing crime with the juvenile programs obviously you reduce your long-term costs and uh that was what Representative Hall was talking about. And there have been some other states that have uh, looked into this and found similar things. Um, and uh, so we gave his claim a mostly true because, uh, you know, there is definitely, uh, you know, there, there's a certainty of costs for the state uh, in the short run. You know, we, you definitely know you're going to have increased costs. You're probably going to see savings, but, you know, not not necessarily. So we were a little bit more cautious on that than he was. Uh, but it does look like it can be uh, something... Uh, that could that could save the state money and it it has support from uh, the John Locke Foundation which is a conservative group here Um, and uh, I think one one thing to note of interest is that North Carolina and New York are the only two states in the country that uh, currently prosecute 16-year-olds as adults some states prosecute 17-year-olds about eight or nine others but New York is also working on one of these bills of their own so there's maybe a, a potential race between North Carolina and New York to you know not be the only state in the country that does this, you know, have that kind of, uh, you know, what some people might consider a black mark. You
0: yeah, know, we're seeing it seems like more uh, cooperation between Republicans and Democrats on these kind of criminal justice reform ideas, uh, especially at the national level, where we heard Senator Tillis say that uh, you know this was a top priority for him. Now, how that'll fare with the, a Trump administration that that's you know says it's it's going to be tough on crime and. Uh, um, a president who talks a lot about uh, the high crime in the, in the, in the cities that, uh, that he right, sees. Which uh, PolitiFact has um,
4: looked into, and actually most cities, crime is at historic or near historic lows for the last you know, 30 or 40 years. So,
0: so American carnage <laughs> is is not, uh, a bit of not happening as much as in the past. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, we'll take a break and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about some of the other things that happened this week. Uh, stay with us. These are the sounds of someone taking their eyes off the road. Texting while driving is more than distracting. It's dangerous. Do us all a favor. When you're on the road, stay off the phone. A message from CTIA, America's wireless companies, and the National Safety Council. And Domecast is back. Uh, So uh, one thing that uh, people were uh, very interested in this week uh, that we wrote about Uh, was this video that was taken of uh, former governor pat mccrory being essentially chased down an alley and cornered uh, by a group of people who were shouting uh, shame at him and and other things Um, colin what happened there Um, yeah so
2: as best we can tell this was on uh last friday inauguration day and of course uh inauguration day in washington dc had uh tons of protesters uh all over the city uh it seemed and uh Pat McCrory uh, appeared to have been in the area, I assume, to attend some of the inaugural events, but um, possibly to have some other meetings as well. So on this street corner in D.C., he gets out of a car along with Lou Dobbs, the uh, TV um, commentator who's on some of the financial networks. Um, And they appear to be going to some sort of meeting at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce building, but they – uh, get out of the car and a group of protesters immediately recognizes McCrory and begins chanting shame uh, and a couple of other uh, chants that seem to re- represent this group's uh, opposition to McCrory over House Bill 2 um, and then he's quickly ushered down an alley towards where he's uh, having this meeting. The group follows him into the alley, continues to sort of almost chase him down and then uh, he gets to the dead end of the alley where he's awaiting to be ad- admittance to this locked building um, and there's this sort of awkward several minutes where they just sort of surround McCrory. One of them yells, we got you now. Um, and McCrory doesn't really react. But clearly, I mean, it's, it's probably a bit of a scary situation for him. Uh, eventually, some police intervene and, and push the crowd back. Um, but the interesting part was that this video ended up on Facebook sometime on Saturday afternoon, started to uh, go viral. Um, and then we picked it up on, on Sunday. Um, and there's been a pretty polarized, uh, I think, uh, reaction to this. I I threw the question out on Twitter of, you know, do people view this as a legitimate form of protest or do they view this as harassment or or threats towards a, a former public official? And the reaction I got almost seemed to split down party lines. A lot of the people who were not McCrory fans thought this was a perfectly legitimate way to protest him and that he, deserved what he got. Uh, People who perhaps were were more conservative or or more moderate uh, felt like this was perhaps a a step too far that, you know, it's one thing to, you know, protest and and voice your opinions about something, but to follow an elected official of some sort or a former elected official down an alley and sort of corner them um, is uh, perhaps a a step too far. Um, And the, the impact of it locally was that Uh, A day or two after the video came out, State Senator Dan Bishop, who is known very well as the sponsor of House Bill 2, when he was back in the the House last year, he'd moved over to the Senate this year um, to take on a a new role, Uh, he said he was going to introduce uh, a bill, and he hasn't done so yet, that would uh, criminalize this sort of, uh, I think in his words, threats or intimidation towards a a public official or former public official um, and punish that by prison time. He cited a a law that's on the books in uh, D.C. uh, specific to D.C. uh, lawmakers and and elected officials. Um, Unclear exactly how much that has been enforced or or actually used to prosecute people uh, in the District of Columbia. Uh, But that's sort of the the precedent he's using. Uh, We'll see if he actually files the bill or if this was more sort of a uh, just talk to sort of voice his displeasure with with how this went down. He was also concerned that um, media had reported it and had not gone enough detail about who posted this video. The video was posted by uh, someone who appears to be a member of a Greensboro socialist group, um, which has uh, since taken credit for, I guess, both the protest and the video that it was, it was their people who were involved in this and happened to uh, come by come across uh... governor mccrory by chance on the street corner uh... so i think he uh, bishop felt like the the nature of the group was was equally concerning as as what they did um, in this particular incident but certainly uh, lots of people have watched this video and lots of people have opinions about it
3: i would add that uh... if there was ever any doubt that hb2 played a role in pat mccrory's very narrow loss for reelection this was a pretty uh, good exa- illustration of that i mean what are the chances that he pops out of some limo with Lou Dobbs and there's people who recognize him? Maybe they because they were from North Carolina, but they recognized him and chased him down the street. Yeah, it wasn't I mean. clear whether they had... Followed him in no, some way I or mean, were looking for him bad, or if it was just luck bad luck? It yeah, seemed
0: quite very coordinated to be it just did uh, seem, bad luck. Yeah, uh, it did
3: seem like more than a coincidence. Maybe they but, knew
0: where he was going to be for some reason. Um,
3: perhaps, but uh, it certainly, like I said, illustrates that uh, he was inexorably tied to HB2 and suffered politically from it, something that he tried to avoid from the beginning by talking, trying to talk Charlotte out of doing it in the first place.
0: And, Craig, you wrote about some analysis of the election this week. Um, actually, the former governor has been in the news quite a bit, even though he's gone uh, from office. He, he um, w- This analysis basically looked at where McCrory won and where Cooper won, and we don't know everything because uh, another thing Colin wrote about was that we don't have all the precinct-level data uh, yet, uh, but the county-level data, of course, is in. And uh, so where did McCrory do well and where did Cooper do well?
3: Well, it was basically Cooper won in, was it seven metro counties? Mm -hmm. uh, And the rest. And one big, like 63 to 37. Huge, yeah. Just kind of ran away with it. And they were basically better educated, uh, racially diverse uh, counties. Um, And the rest of it, the rest of the state, uh, 90, whatever those 93 counties, um, were McCrory County country. you know and no, I'm not talking about the rocks and the trees but i mean it's kind of that rural urban divide or as this particular analyst said it's it's even more than that it's like a mega county we have a few mega counties that are driving the show and that's how you that's where you campaign because they're uh, they're uh, winning out over the rural areas
0: it seems that maybe democrats will and maybe they've already shift had have, have their strategy like this but the Dem- all the votes the democrats need are in very Um, you know small areas and they don't have to go very far to look for the votes that they would need to win a statewide election yeah
3: and I don't know what it means in terms of uh, you know I've seen the criticism of the Hillary Clinton campaign that they didn't reach uh, blue-collar people they didn't reach people on pocketbook issues they were catering too much uh, to the left um,
0: is one theory and uh, I don't know that doesn't didn't seem to play out that well that way here And of course, we know it was a very expensive election. Uh, We got some more numbers on that this week. And Colin, you wrote about that. The uh, McCrory Legal Defense Fund, which uh, was spending money after the election, uh, spent $260,000, I believe. So uh, what was that uh, spending for?
2: Yeah, so that was, a lot of that was the attorneys uh, that McCrory had hired uh, to help him out through that process. Some of that was Roger Knight, who's a longtime uh, attorney for uh, Republican politicians in a variety of situations, uh, along with uh, the Shanahan Law Group, which is, of course, led by the former public safety secretary for Governor McCrory, Kieran Shanahan. The attorney that was involved there was John Branch, who McCrory later appointed uh, to the Ethics Commission, to the chair of that position, uh, on his way out of office uh so that was a good chunk of that and there was also staff salaries ultimately it looked like he he continued to pay about a dozen or so of his campaign staffers and and what they were doing uh, because you can see through the travel records or travel expenses that were listed in there is uh going to uh, different county board of election offices across the state uh asking to review absentee ballots for signs of uh, what they termed absentee ballot mills where Uh, certain groups were filling out or assisting in filling out multiple uh, absentee ballots uh, and also just looking for any sort of irregularities in general that could prompt some sort of uh, election complaint. So that was sort of on the McCrory side. Uh, A lot of people donated to that, including uh, some other Republican campaigns, uh, the campaign of Richard Burr, as well as uh, Congressman uh, Richard Hudson uh, are listed as donors to the McCrory Legal Defense Fund. On the Cooper side, Roy Cooper never uh, set aside a separate fund for legal defense. So it's a little bit harder to track just how much this process costs the Cooper campaign because uh, the expenses for this go into his main campaign account, which includes obviously a lot of other uh, unrelated expenses that uh, the campaign's incurred over the last few months. Uh, The legal bills there are not in yet. Um, If you look in the the filings that end uh, December 31st, you won't see any legal bills from the folks that um, Cooper had representing him uh, in some of these board of election hearings. Uh, those are out-of-state attorneys uh, and fairly high-profile ones. Of course, Mark Elias was among them, and he was the uh, best known as the, the general counsel for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, so when I talked to Morgan Jackson, who's one of the uh, folks that continues to run the, the Cooper campaign in sort of its dormant period now that he's the governor, um, mentioned that The legal bills for that haven't come in yet, so we won't really see the cost of that uh, for them until uh, the first uh, filing period of 2017, but he did say he estimates them to be in the the six-figure range, so I I kind of suspect based on that and based on the sort of attorneys that Cooper hired, his legal bills for this process may actually be higher than what uh, McCrory was paying. Cooper also had to to keep staff on board through December, uh, which is unusual. Normally, when the election is resolved on Election Day, within a week or two, most of the campaigns uh, start to dissipate. Uh, the staffers move on to other things, and, and they stop collecting paychecks. But for both Cooper and McCrory, their, their campaign staffers stayed on board uh, well into December.
0: Okay. It seems like uh, lawyers were big winners in the 2016 election. Yeah, it's, and, it's
2: generally just a good time to be a lawyer that has anything to do with politics in, in North Carolina and has been for several years and probably will continue to be. Yeah, uh, this year's looking like
0: another uh, bonanza for, uh, based on some of the cases that are out there with uh, Governor Cooper's powers and, and HB2 and everything else redistricting. So uh, we'll continue to follow all that. We'll take a quick break and be back with Headliner of the Week. today my new dad threw a barbecue i burnt everything
1: ah! and then we
0: played catch i broke mr lewis's window and then somehow my hand my hand
1: and then my dad <laughs> even let me drive his car the hospital's on the-
4: It was a rough day.
1: It was a great day.
3: You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of kids in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad
0: Council. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? head headliner of the week. And it is time for headliner of the week, uh, where we talk about the uh, most important people uh, of the week. Colin, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going with uh, someone who doesn't often end up in the headlines uh, and probably
2: wished uh, she hadn't end up in the headlines this week, uh, State Senator Joyce Craywick, who's a Republican from Kernersville. Uh, she's a fairly low-profile figure in the Senate. You don't hear a whole lot from her, uh, but certainly she's uh, in lockstep a lot of the time with, uh, with Senate Leader Phil Berger and the Republican majority there. She got on Twitter uh, several nights ago. And evidently had some uh, thoughts about the women's march in in Washington D.C. last weekend that she wanted to share. So she tweeted, uh, and I quote: "Message to crazies at women's march: If brains were lard, you couldn't grease a small skillet. You know who you are." Uh, she has since deleted this tweet after it uh, started to go viral, and she was getting a lot of uh, angry responses from folks, and, and apologized uh, for saying that. Said she was referring specifically to individual people who she believed were misbehaving at the march, not the march uh participants in general who who did so respectfully or peacefully, I forget exactly how she worded it, Uh, but the the outcry to this has been so strong that um, as of Thursday uh, Senator Craywick's office has been deluged with some shipments of things that she did not order, and that would be buckets of lard. Uh, People who were upset by that decided to get on Amazon and send her some lard, so um, I suspect she's going to have to figure out what she wants to do with lard, and I suspect she does not own enough skillets to use all the lard that uh, people are sending her in protest.
0: So, going with Senator Joyce Craywick this week for Headliner. Somebody suggested uh, that they were sending it to her, and they hope that she donates it to a, a food bank. So uh, maybe she'll do that. Um, all right, Joyce Senator Joyce Craywick in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Craig, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going to go with Representative Darren Jackson from
3: Nightdale, who is the new uh, Democratic leader in the, in the House. Uh, he had been kind of a quiet member uh, in the first— few years that I observed the the General Assembly, but last year he kind of stepped out in a big way uh, with a really impassioned uh, uh, opposition to HB2. Um, And this year he's uh, just front and center on that and a number of other issues. So he is uh, expressing a lot of optimism about the Democrats' uh, chances this year, even though they're outnumbered to kind of make some progress with some of their initiatives. Uh, maybe a, a new a newbie's uh, overly optimi- optimism, but he
0: uh, he's going to be front and center. We're going to be hearing a lot from him. Okay, Representative Darren Jackson, New House Minority Leader, in there with, along with Senator Joyce Krawick. Uh Will, who's your headliner of the week?
4: My headliner is youngsters. Um, Colin had a story about how in North Carolina uh, last November, only about half of people under the age of twenty-five even bothered to vote um and you know obviously that is uh, you know just kind of giving up some of their influence over the political process you've seen a lot of people marching you, you know these fa- past few weeks who look pretty young uh it's probably a, a decent chance that a lot of the people in the march is you know maybe didn't even vote <laughs> um but uh you know you look at the presidential election and you know there were two of the uh i think two of the oldest candidates that we've ever had running for president um a lot of young people liked you know yet another old candidate, Bernie Sanders, who didn't make the final cut, so uh, I guess there just wasn't a whole lot of enthusiasm um, among my, my fellow youngsters, uh, so I'll do a little bit of uh, public shaming on young people with my Headliner of the Week choice. Okay,
0: Utes in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Uh, we've got young people, we've got uh, Representative Darren Jackson, and we've got Senator Joyce Krawick. Uh Lynn, who's your headliner of the
1: week? I'm going to pick Senator Dan Bishop, um, who made national news for proposing there should be uh, a uh, safe space for uh, former uh, officials and, and uh, officials after seeing uh, the video of former Governor McCrory being shouted at and pursued uh, in Washington. Um He has said he is going to file a bill that would uh, criminalize, I I guess he said, harassment of of officials. Um, But that's been immediately criticized as being uh, unconstitutional. We still haven't seen a bill. It would be interesting to see what it looks like. But um, I'm going to pick uh, Senator Bishop, who in fact, was the um, sponsor of House Bill 2 when he was in the House uh, as my headliner. All right.
0: Senator Dan Bishop, who uh, wants to push for uh, new laws about uh, intimidation of public officials. Uh, So we've got Senator Joyce Krawick, Representative Darren Jackson, Senator Dan Bishop, and the youngsters of North Carolina. Um, I'm going to have to go with Senator Krawick. Uh, we uh, we just don't see uh, boxes of lard being delivered to legislative offices that often, and that was kind of a, a, an interesting story this week. So uh, Colin's pick of Senator Joyce Krawick uh, is headliner of the week. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, check us out on next week's Domecast.